You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. If you only know one thing about President William Howard Taft, it's probably that he once got stuck in the White House bathtub and could only be removed by the prying efforts of six full-grown men. If you don't know that one thing about President William Howard Taft, then you're in luck, because it's almost certainly not true. There are two seemingly independent sources for the story, both of them domestic staffers at the White House. But one of them, a woman named Lillian Rogers Parks, didn't begin working at the White House until more than 25 years after Taft had vacated office. The other was longtime White House usher Irwin Ike Hoover, an electrician who was in charge of installing the first electric lights at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue back in 1891. At that point, the president was Benjamin Harrison, who wasn't happy about this modernization. He was afraid that he or his family would be electrocuted by the newfangled switches. So when Ike Hoover was done with the install, the president asked him to leave Edison Electric and serve his country, protecting the life of the first family by flipping the lights on and off for them. Ike Hoover went on to serve nine presidents. Two of them died in office. William McKinley was shot by anarchist Leon Cholgosh at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York on September 6, 1901, half a year into his second term. William G. Harding fell ill on July 27, 1923, shortly after giving a speech at the University of Washington. He complained that evening of chest pain, which his homeopath, Charles Sawyer, misdiagnosed as a gastrointestinal problem. It was, in actuality, a heart attack. He was treated with caffeine. Ike Hoover oversaw both presidential funerals. He was in charge of happier events, too. The weddings of Teddy Roosevelt's daughter Alice and Woodrow Wilson's daughters Eleanor and Jessie. And, most critically for us, he was there for Taft's bathing routine. It's probably from Hoover and his 1934 memoir, 42 Years in the White House, that the seeds of this embarrassing story were planted. In it, Hoover writes that President Taft would, in his words, stick to the tub and have to be helped out of it. That little nugget, along with a lot of crappy jokes about Taft's weight in the popular press, is likely the germ of the tale, even though it says nothing about needing six men to remove him and says that he would stick to the tub, rather than getting stuck in the tub. And that, to me, seems like a pretty important distinction. Especially because when William Howard Taft was in office, it would have been pretty well impossible for anyone to get stuck in the presidential bathtub. Before he won the high office, Taft served as Secretary of War under Teddy Roosevelt, who ordered him to Panama to assure the construction of the Panama Canal. Taft was a man who really enjoyed a good bath. So much so that he had a new tub built into the USS North Carolina for his private usage during the Panama mission. This tub was seven feet long, weighed close to a thousand pounds, and was so decked out with innovative gizmos that Engineering Review, a trade magazine, took up two very long broadsheet pages describing them. When he won the presidential, Taft had this gigantic tub moved into the presidential bathroom. Photos of it, after installation, show four workers sitting comfortably inside it at the same time. 
if William Howard Taft did indeed need an occasional hand out of the bath, as Ike claimed, it wasn't because the president was too big, but because his tub was. I'm only thinking about Taft and his bathtub because of a telling waylay I experienced recently. A friend had posted some trenchant and terrifying political analysis of the day that included an offhanded reference to the bathtub myth on Facebook. But all of the discussion on this post was about Taft and the bathtub. It was like everyone saw in this tiny bit of presidential trivia a small path out of the burning rubble. Like, we all want to talk and think about anything other than the current moment. Yes, please, let's think about William Howard Taft and his bathtub. Anything to not have to think about our present circumstances for a moment. But that was weeks ago. This episode is dropping on Election Day. An election that might not be resolved for days or weeks and resolved how. It's too much to think about. I need a diversion. And William Howard Taft's bathtub just isn't high enough proof to do the job. William Howard Taft's bathtub is like a cherry cordial, and I need something with whiskey in it. Which means, naturally, that we've got to talk about a different obscure president and his bathtub. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. If you're listening to this in time, please go vote. And if you have already, then you deserve a little reward, a little R&R. Allow this story to be that. Let yourself sink into it like a nice, warm bath. Today's episode, Presidents in Bathtubs. If you only know one thing about Millard Fillmore, it's probably that he was president once. If you know two things about Millard Fillmore, well, you probably don't know two things about Millard Fillmore. But by the time this story is over, you still won't. But you will know something about his bathtub. See, when Millard Fillmore took office in 1850, after the death of President Zachary Taylor, oh shit, that's two more things you now know. I've got to be more careful. When Fillmore became president in 1850, there were a lot of open questions in medicine, many of which we've already talked about. People in the mid-19th century suspected a lot of things were good for them that were actually bad, like bleeding themselves, or eating gold, or eating snake venom, or eating human flesh. And they also suspected a lot of things were bad for them that were actually good. Things like the air at night. And baths. Until 1850, when the newly sworn-in president, Millard Fillmore, had one installed in the White House and almost single-handedly turned Americans on to cleaning themselves. Maybe you feel like you've heard this before, that Americans and Europeans didn't like to bathe until shockingly recently, but 1850? That is crazy, right? And yet, think about all the things we've talked about before that people didn't know or wrongly knew in 1850. In 1850, nobody knew what caused disease. They didn't know where babies came from or where birds went in the winter. They thought there was an open, temperate sea at the North Pole. So it's not really that surprising that they might have believed baths caused sickness. Which is probably why, when H.L. Mencken made up the story in 1917, people believed it. There. We got the turn out of the way early this time. Americans did not askew bathing until the 1850s. They didn't think it made people sick. And Millard Fillmore had nothing to do with... Well... Anything, really. Oh, aside from the Compromise of 1850, which he barely even helped to negotiate. Crap. Oh, there I go again. There's no reason for me to continue trying to be clever with how I tell this story, because Mencken already was. In case you're grasping for why that name sounds familiar, H.L. Mencken was a prominent journalist and writer from the very end of the 19th century through the time he suffered a massive stroke in 1948. He's remembered for... Well, man, a lot of stuff. His essays, editorials, cultural criticism in particular, short stories, poetry and novels, ugh, less so. 
He wrote a massive and massively influential survey of American English in 1919, titled The American Language, an Inquiry into the Development of English in the United States. He's probably best known for his reporting on what he termed the Scopes Monkey Trial, which informed the play and film Inherit the Wind. In the movie, the Mencken part was played by Gene Kelly. Before any of that stuff, though, Mencken wrote an article for the New York Evening Mail, headlined, A Neglected Anniversary. Now, before we go into its effects and intentions, I'm going to give you that article nearly in its entirety with just one little edit, which I need to quickly address. Uh, Mencken was a great writer and an interesting thinker, not to mention very funny, which is why I want to give you the whole thing. But he also has a pretty checkered record on race, ethnicity, and religion, to put it charitably. And there's one line in A Neglected Anniversary that uses antiquated racial language that could be overlooked as just a sign of the times, but knowing Mencken's larger legacy, well, I I don't want to repeat it, that's all. So I'm making one tiny little cut in his article of a line that is absolutely unnecessary and unfunny anyway, mostly for my own sake. I wanted to be transparent about that, And hopefully that transparency isn't too distracting. Okay, here's a neglected anniversary from the New York Evening Mail, December 28th, 1917. On December 20th, there flitted past us, absolutely without public notice, one of the most important profane anniversaries in American history, to wit, the 75th anniversary of the introduction of the bathtub into these states. Not a plumber fired a salute or hung out a flag. Not a governor proclaimed a day of prayer. Not a newspaper called attention to the day. True enough, it was not entirely forgotten. Eight or nine months ago, one of the younger surgeons connected with the public health service in Washington happened upon the facts while looking into the early history of public hygiene. And at his suggestion, a committee was formed to celebrate the anniversary with a banquet. But before the plan was perfected, Washington went dry, and so the banquet had to be abandoned. As it was, the day passed wholly unmarked, even in the capital of the nation. Bathtubs are so common today that it is almost impossible to imagine a world without them. They are familiar to nearly everyone in all incorporated towns. In most of the large cities, it is unlawful to build a dwelling house without putting them in. Even on the farm, they have begun to come into use. And yet, the first American bathtub was installed and dedicated so recently as December 20th, 1842. And, for all I know to the contrary, it may still be in existence and in use. Curiously enough, the scene of its setting up was Cincinnati, then a squalid frontier town, and even today, surely no leader in culture. (laughs) Ouch, Cincinnati. But Cincinnati in those days as in these contained many enterprising merchants, and one of them was a man named Adam Thompson, a dealer in cotton and grain. Thompson shipped his grain by steamboat down the Ohio and Mississippi to New Orleans, and from there sent it to England in sailing vessels. This trade frequently took him to England, and in that country during the 30s, he acquired the habit of bathing. The bathtub was then still a novelty in England. It had been introduced in 1828 by Lord John Russell, and its use was yet confined to a small class of enthusiasts. Moreover, the English bathtub, then as now, was a puny and inconvenient contrivance, little more, in fact, than a glorified dishpan, and filling and emptying it required the attendance of a servant. Taking a bath, indeed, was a rather heavy ceremony, and Lord John, in 1835, was said to be the only man in England who had yet come to doing it every day. Thompson, who was of inventive fancy, he later devised the machine that is still used for bagging hams and bacon, conceived the notion that the English bathtub would be much improved if it were made large enough to admit the whole body of an adult man, and if its supply of water, instead of being hauled to the scene by a maid, were admitted by pipes from a central reservoir and run off by the same means. Accordingly, early in 1842, he set about building the first modern bathroom in his Cincinnati home, a large house with Doric pillars standing near what is now the corner of Monastery and Orleans streets. There was then, of course, no city water supply, at least in that part of the city, but Thompson had a large well in his garden and he installed a pump to lift its water to the house. This pump, which was operated much like an old-time fire engine, was connected by a pipe with a cypress tank in the garret of the house, and here the water was stored until needed. 
From the tank, two other pipes ran to the bathroom. One carrying cold water was a direct line. The other, designed to provide warm water, ran down the great chimney of the kitchen and was coiled around it like a giant spring. The tub itself was of new design and became the grandfather of all the bathtubs of today. Thompson had made it by James Colness, the leading Cincinnati cabinet maker of those days, and its material was Nicaragua mahogany. It was nearly seven feet long and four foot wide. To make it watertight, the interior was lined with sheet lead, carefully soldered at the joints. The whole contraption weighed around 1,750 pounds, and the floor of the room in which it was placed had to be reinforced to support it. The exterior was elaborately polished. In this luxurious tub, Thompson took two baths on December 20th, 1842, a cold one at 8 a.m. and a warm one sometime during the afternoon. The warm water, heated by the kitchen fire, reached a temperature of 105 degrees. On Christmas Day, having a party of gentlemen to dinner, he exhibited the new marvel to them and gave an exhibition of its use, and four of them, including a French visitor, Colonel Duchesnel, risked plunges into it. The next day, all Cincinnati, then a town of about 100,000 people, had heard of it, and the local newspapers describe it at length and opened their columns to violent discussions of it. The thing, in fact, became a public matter, and before long there was bitter and double-headed opposition to the new invention, which had been promptly imitated by several other wealthy Cincinnatians. On the one hand, it was denounced as an epicurean and obnoxious toy from England, designed to corrupt the democratic simplicity of the republic, and, on the other hand, it was attacked by the medical faculty as dangerous to health and a certain inviter of fistic rheumatic fevers, inflammation of the lungs, and the whole category of zymotic diseases, I quote from the Western Medical Repository of April 23, 1843. The noise of the controversy soon reached other cities, and in more than one place, medical opposition reached such strength that it was reflected in legislation. Late in 1843, for example, the Philadelphia Common Council considered an ordinance prohibiting bathing between November 1st and March 15th, and it failed of passage by but two votes. During the same year, the legislature of Virginia laid a tax of $30 a year on all bathtubs that might be set up, and at Hartford, Providence, Charleston, and Wilmington, Delaware, special and very heavy water rates were levied upon those who had them. Boston, very early in 1845, made bathing unlawful except upon medical advice, but the ordinance was never enforced, and in 1862 was repealed. This legislation, I suspect, had some class feeling in it, for the Thompson bathtub was plainly too expensive to be owned by any save the wealthy. Indeed, the common price for installing one in New York in 1845 was $500. Thus, the low-caste politicians of the time made capital by fulminating against it, and there is even some suspicion of political bias in many of the early medical denunciations. But the invention of the common pine bathtub, lined with zinc in 1847, cut off this line of attack, and thereafter, the bathtub made steady progress. The zinc tub was devised by John F. Simpson, a Brooklyn plumber, and his efforts to protect it by a patent occupied the courts until 1855. But the decisions were steadily against him, and after 1848, all the plumbers of New York were equipped for putting in bathtubs. According to a writer in the Christian Register for July 17, 1857, the first one in New York was opened for traffic on September 12, 1847, and by the beginning of 1850, there were already nearly 1,000 in use in the big town. After this, medical opposition began to collapse, and among other eminent physicians, Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes declared for the bathtub and vigorously opposed the lingering movement against it in Boston. The American Medical Association held its annual meeting in Boston in 1849, and a poll of the members in attendance showed that nearly 55% of them now regarded bathing as harmless, and that more than 20% advocated it as beneficial. At its meeting in 1850, a resolution was formally passed giving the imprimatur of the faculty to the bathtub. The homeopaths followed with a like resolution in 1853. But it was the example of President Millard Fillmore that, even more than the grudging medical approval, gave the bathtub recognition and respectability in the United States. While he was still vice president in March 1850, he visited Cincinnati on a stumping tour and inspected the original Thompson tub. 
Thompson himself was now dead, but his bathroom was preserved by the gentleman who had bought his house from the estate. Fillmore was entertained in this house and, according to Chamberlain, his biographer, took a bath in the tub. Experiencing no ill effects, he became an ardent advocate of the new invention, and on succeeding to the presidency at Taylor's death, July 9, 1850, he instructed his Secretary of War, General Charles M. Conrad, to invite tenders for the construction of a bathtub in the White House. This action, for a moment, revived the old controversy, and its opponents made much of the fact that there was no bathtub at Mount Vernon or at Monticello, and that all the presidents and other magnificos of the past had got along without any such monarchical luxuries. The elder Bennett, in the New York Herald, charged that Fillmore really aspired to buy and install in the White House a porphyry and alabaster bath that had been used by Louis-Philippe at Versailles. But Conrad, disregarding all this clamor, duly called for bids, and the contract was presently awarded to Harper and Gillespie, a firm of Philadelphia engineers who proposed to furnish a tub of thin cast iron, capable of floating the largest man. This was installed early in 1851 and remained in service in the White House until the first Cleveland administration, when the present enamel tub was substituted. The example of the president soon broke down all that remained of the old opposition, and by 1860, according to the newspaper advertisements of the time, every hotel in New York had a bathtub, and some had two, and even three. In 1862, bathing was introduced into the army by General McClellan, and in 1870, the first prison bathtub was set up at Moyamensing Prison in Philadelphia. So much for the history of the bathtub in America. One is astonished on looking into it to find that so little of it has been recorded. The literature, in fact, is almost nil. But perhaps this brief sketch will encourage other inquirers and so lay the foundation for an adequate celebration of the centennial in 1942. Surely this article did not encourage other inquirers to spread the news, right? Yeah, you know where this is going. But don't you want to see how it gets there? Then stick around. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. If something is preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. They'll assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist in a safe and private online environment in under 24 hours from signing up. It's not self-help, it's professional counseling provided at your own pace. Send messages to your counselor anytime and get timely, thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without having to leave your home. BetterHelp is committed to offering great therapeutic care at an affordable price. It's cheaper than traditional counseling with financial aid available, and you can change counselors anytime you want. It's available worldwide, with counselors specializing in areas that might not be available to you locally, like self-esteem, LGBT matters, anxiety, or depression. BetterHelp is currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states, and there's a reason why. Their service is convenient, professional, and affordable. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash The Constant. A month or so ago, I did something really stressful. I dropped my completed absentee ballot into a mailbox. For two days, I worried about it. Would it get lost? Would the Postal Service be so slow that it wouldn't make it in time? Would it get rejected or thrown out? That's not how things are supposed to be. Voting should be free, fair, and safe for everyone eligible. And no one should have to worry about whether their vote is going to be counted. Yet, 25 of these United States have enacted voting restrictions in the last decade, and 3.2 million registration applications and ballots were rejected in the 2018 midterm election. We live in a democracy. Demand that your elected officials have the time to count every vote in the 2020 elections. Decision makers nationwide want to make it harder to get every ballot counted and voice heard. 
Don't let this stop you from taking a stand to protect your voting and civil rights. They will not silence us. Visit andstillivote.org to call your elected officials today to make sure every vote is counted. Paid for by the Leadership Conference Education Fund. If you know it's a joke going in and read the whole thing, Menken's article reads pretty funny, I think. But neither of those things are given. People opening up the New York Evening Mail on December 28, 1917, had no reason to think they were going to be pranked, aside from the unfortunate fact that newspapers were prone to pranking their readers, as we've discussed several times in the recent past. But even with that knowledge, there's nothing so uproariously insane about the fake facts presented that would necessarily tip one off that something was afoot. I mean, did you think I was pulling your leg when I told you about Americans not bathing? It's not as absurd as geese flying to the moon or drinking radioactive water or dozens of other bonkers things that people truly did believe. Not to mention, most people who read Menken's anniversary story didn't get a chance to read it in full. Because most didn't read it in the New York Evening Mail. The story was picked up and placed in papers around the country, but not, generally, in its complete form. Instead, it was clipped to a shorter an arguably less funny version with headlines like A History of the Bathtub, or American Bathtubs, How It Began, or The Rise of the Bathtub. Artless titles that only further served to blunt suspicion. And perhaps that is why so many people came to believe that the bathtub was invented in 1842 and only became socially acceptable through the efforts of President Millard Fillmore. Or maybe... People were simply more gullible than Menken anticipated. Or maybe they were exactly as gullible as he anticipated. If there's an outstanding mystery involved in this tale, it's what Menken was thinking when he wrote up his phony bathtub history. He always maintained that he had meant it purely as a joke and had never anticipated people taking it seriously. But that is not necessarily a given. In 1999, Wendy McElroy wrote an article for The Freeman, which asserted that, in spite of his protestations to the contrary, Mencken had meant for the fish to swallow the hook. And her argument? Mmm, it's pretty interesting. She notes that at the time of the anniversary's publication, Mencken had some serious bones to pick with both newspapers and their readers. He thought, not incorrectly, that American papers were publishing anti-German propaganda about the First World War that was going on in Europe. And that especially niggled him because he was sympathetic to Germany. And because of those German sympathies, nobody would print his work if it was at all political or touched on anything even tangentially related to the war. He had been writing for a few years as a columnist with the Baltimore Evening Sun, but after a few pieces defending the Kaiser against charges of war crimes, he was muzzled from talking politics within the paper's pages. And that was true at other papers and magazines, too. In private, he argued with the editors to allow him to write about the war, but they all turned him down. And there's some reason to feel sympathy for Mencken's plight. The media of the period were all too happy to run stories about Germany that turned out to be state-sponsored misinformation. In England and America, there was a cascade of stories about the rape of Belgium, shot through with accusations of unthinkable evil, like German soldiers bayoneting babies or raping and murdering a whole convent of nuns. The baby killing probably didn't actually happen, which is precisely what Mencken suspected. As for the nuns, hmm, it's hard to say. Records show that they were stripped naked in front of German soldiers who suspected they were harboring spies within their ranks, but that's all we know about that. Surely, the German advance in Belgium was marked by the rape and murder of many civilians, and that is nothing to shrug off. At the same time, rape and murder by soldiers wasn't exactly invented by Germany, was it? The German army really did act quite heinously during World War I, but they weren't alone. Most importantly, there's something about the coverage of German war crimes that is deeply troubling, something that Mencken identified. World War I was stupid and meaningless, even more than war tends typically to be. Some archduke was killed by an assassin, and for that the whole of Europe and beyond has to be burnt down? Tens of millions have to die? It didn't make sense, and yet there it was. With the reporting of the rape of Belgium, the Allies found a better narrative, one in which Germany was evil, and the fight was not about political alliances and obscure foreign officials, but of right and wrong. That narrative wasn't factual, it was poetry. And Mencken rightly 
detested it. His advocacy for Germany was terribly misplaced, for sure, but his suspicion of blind patriotism and its platitudes was right on. So, I guess it is a shame he wasn't allowed to make that case to the public. On the other hand, I don't think it's very worth feeling sorry for the guy, not only because so many of his opinions were gross and wrong, but also because for all this self-supposed censorship, the war years were pretty damn good for Mencken. Focusing his writing away from politics allowed him to work up the American language. He continued his regular column, edited a literary magazine in which he got to contribute original fiction, published a collection of criticism and a book entitled In Defense of Women, which is, depending on whom you ask, a progressive broadside against the powers of the patriarchy, or a bunch of misogynistic women-hating vitriol wrapped up in a big sneering ironic joke. Honestly, it is very difficult to tell which. That's the same problem we have here, basically. Mencken was not a murky writer. He wasn't convoluted or imprecise. Very much the opposite. In fact, his work is laser-focused, clear, and clever. But the intention and beliefs that undergird that work are nevertheless difficult to work out. Mencken modeled himself off of Ambrose Bierce, the author best known for An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, one of my favorite short stories, and The Devil's Dictionary, one of my favorite dictionaries. And like Bierce, Mencken was an iconoclast, a contrarian, who lashed out at anything which struck him as hypocritical, who pressed his finger deep in every wall to test whether they were truly solid. That means that, frequently, he appears to lack an affirmative philosophy at all. Like, if you could ask him what he believed, he could only answer, well, not that. McElroy argues that a neglected anniversary was Mencken's way of attacking the wartime press and public in the only way he could. He couldn't talk directly about the public gobbling up newspaper propaganda, but he could cook up a plate himself and ring the dinner bell. It's an interesting theory, uh, even if I am not entirely convinced. Beyond the text itself, the best evidence we have is what Mencken did after. After the piece was published, after it began to spread, after it was on its way to becoming a common piece of trivia, tangled hopelessly into otherwise credible sources of every size and shape from magazines to museums, what he did was nothing. He kept quiet, didn't say a word, and that is confusing, whether he meant the piece as a joke or a gotcha. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It wasn't until more than eight years later that Mencken came forward to set the record straight. His confession ran on May 23, 1926, in papers around the country, under the headline, Melancholy Reflections. It reads, On December 28, 1917, I printed in the New York Evening Mail, a paper now extinct, an article purporting to give the history of the bathtub. This article, I may say at once, was a tissue of absurdities, all of them deliberate and most of them obvious. This article, as I say, was planned as a piece of spoofing to relieve the strain of war days, and I confess that I regarded it when it came out with considerable satisfaction. It was reprinted by various great organs of the Enlightenment, and after a while the usual letters began to reach me from readers. Then, suddenly, my satisfaction turned to consternation. For these readers, it appeared, all took my idle jocosities with complete seriousness. Some of them, of antiquarian tastes, asked for further light on this or that phase of the subject. Others actually offered me corroboration. But the worst was to come. Pretty soon I began to encounter my preposterous facts in the writings of other men. 
they began to be used by chiropractors and other such quacks as evidence of the stupidity of medical men. They began to be cited by medical men as proof of the progress of public hygiene. They got into learned journals. They were alluded to on the floor of Congress. They crossed the ocean and were discussed solemnly in England and on the continent. Finally, I began to find them in standard works of reference. Today, I believe they are accepted as gospel everywhere on earth. To question them becomes as hazardous as to question the Norman invasion. And as rare! This is the first time, indeed, that they have ever been questioned. And I confess at once that I myself, their author, feel a certain hesitancy about doing it. Once more, I suppose, I'll be accused of taking the wrong side for the mere pleasure of standing in opposition. The Cincinnati boomers, who have made much of the boast that the bathtub industry, now running $200 million a year, was started in their town, will charge me with spreading lies against them. The chiropractors will damn me for blowing up their ammunition. The medical gents, having swallowed my quackery, will now denounce me as a quack for exposing them. And, in the end, no doubt, the thing will simmer down to a general feeling that I have once more committed some vague and sinister crime against the United States, and there will be a renewal of the demand that I be deported to Russia. I recite this history not because it is singular, but because it is typical. It is out of just such frauds, I believe, that most of the so-called knowledge of humanity flows. What begins as a guess, or perhaps not infrequently, as a downright and deliberate lie, ends as a fact and is embalmed in the history books. One recalls the gaudy days of 1914 to 18, how much that was then devoured by the newspaper readers of the world was actually true. Probably not 1%. Ever since the war ended, learned and laborious men have been at work examining and exposing its fictions, but every one of these fictions retains full faith and credit today. To question even the most palpably absurd of them in most parts of the United States is to invite denunciation as a Bolshevik. So with all other wars. For example, the Revolution. For years, past American historians have been investigating the Orthodox legends. Almost all of them turn out to be blousy nonsense, Yet, they remain in the school history books, and every effort to get them out causes a dreadful row, and those who make it are accused of all sorts of treason and spoils. The truth, indeed, is something that mankind, for some mysterious reason, instinctively dislikes. Every man who tries to tell it is unpopular, and even when, by the sheer strength of his case, he prevails, he is put down as a scoundrel. As a practicing journalist for many years, I have often had close contact with history in the making. I can recall no time or place when what actually occurred was afterward generally known and believed. Sometimes a part of the truth got out, but never all. And what actually got out was seldom clearly understood. Consider, for example, the legends that follow every national convention. A thousand newspaper correspondents are all on the scene, all of them theoretically competent to see accurately and report honestly, but it is seldom that two of them agree perfectly. And after a month after the convention adjourns, the accepted version of what occurred usually differs from the accounts of all of them. I turn to a more pleasant field, that of sports in the grand manner. On July 2nd, 1921, in the Great Bowl at Jersey City, the Honorable Jack Dempsey met M. Carpentier, the gallant frog. The sympathy of the crowd was overwhelmingly with M. Carpentier, and every time he struck a blow, he got a round of applause even if it didn't land. I had an excellent seat, very near the ring, and saw every move of the two men. From the first moment, Dr. Dempsey had it all his own way. He could have knocked out M. Carpentier in the first half of the first round. After that first half, he simply waited his chance to do it politely and humanely. Yet certain great newspapers reported the next morning that M. Carpentier had delivered an appalling wallop in the second round and that Dr. Dempsey had narrowly escaped going out. Others told the truth, but what chance had the truth against that romantic lie? It is believed, to this day, by at least 99.99% of all the boxing fans in Christendom. Carpentier himself, when he recovered from his beating, admitted categorically that it was nonsense, but even Carpentier could make no headway against the almost universal human tendency to cherish what is not true. A thousand years hence, schoolboys will be taught that the frog had Dempsey going. It may become in time a religious dogma, like the doctrine that Jonah swallowed the whale. Scoffers who doubt it will be damned to hell. The moral, if any, I leave to psychopathologists, if competent ones can be found, all I care to do today is to reiterate, in the most solemn and awful terms, that my history of the bathtub, printed on December 28, 1917, was pure bunkum. If there were any facts in it, they got there accidentally and against my design. But today the tale is in the encyclopedias. 
History, said a great American soothsayer, is bunk. If you're down with the theory that Mencken had been purposely trying to pull the wool over people's eyes, you might take that sidebar about World War I propaganda as proof positive. If you think it was only ever meant to be a joke, you can take Mencken at his word. But one way or the other, with that loud and thorough missive, Mencken managed to finally subdue the story of Fillmore's bathtub and drive it out of the popular press. For a couple of weeks. In fact, the lie only seems to have picked up pace after the 1926 confession. It's retold that year in the Chicago Evening American and the next year by the New York Times. It continues to be circulated by chiropractors as proof of the medical establishment's idiocy. It's turned into a pamphlet called Saga of the Bathtub and circulated by a Los Angeles printing company in 1929. The next year, it lands in three national magazines, including House Beautiful. The phony centennial of the bathtub that Mencken wrote he hoped would be celebrated was, with newspapers across the country, from New York to Chicago to Tucson, again replaying the story. By the mid-30s, it is common enough to frequently make it into government sources. The U.S. Federal Housing Administration signs off on it, the Kentucky Department of Health, the New York Commissioner of Health. Finally, by the 1950s, the story is being spread and endorsed by President Harry S. Truman. Mencken's joke lands in all kinds of places. Books on trivia, books on plumbing, and most especially, books on presidents, who are so frequently looking for something to say about Millard Fillmore other than he was one. And in case you think that the story must have died out at some point, or at least moved to incredible corners, I want you to know that the Washington Post has written about Fillmore installing the first bathtub in the White House twice in the last 20 years. But most vexing of all to Mencken was the Boston Herald, which ran his melancholy reflections in May of 1926, and then, the next month, reprinted the bathtub story again. This caused Mencken to return to the well for a third time, writing a final column on his hoax for the Chicago Tribune on July 25, 1926. I've already read you a neglected anniversary and melancholy reflections. If I could settle once and for all Mencken's true intentions, I would. But instead, it seems only fitting that I end with the third part of his triptych. He titled it, Him to the Truth. On May 23rd last, writing in this place, I told the strange, sad story of an article that I printed in the New York Evening Mail, a paper now happily extinct, on December 28, 1917. That article thrown off as a relief from the patriotic libido of wartime, was, in substance, a burlesque history of the bathtub. I may confess that when it was done, I fancied it no little. It was artfully devised, and it contained some buffooneries of considerable juiciness. I had confidence that the customers of the evening mail would like it. And they liked it only too well. That is to say, they swallowed it as gospel, gravely and horribly. Worse, they began sending clippings of it to friends, east, west, north, and south, and so it spread to other papers, and then to the magazines, and weeklies of opinion, and then to the scientific press, and finally, to the reference books. Its transparent wheezes got themselves converted into sober history. It accumulated corroborative detail. To this day, it is in circulation, and, as I say, has broken into the reference books and is there embalmed for the instruction and edification of posterity. On May 23rd, writing here, I exposed it at length. I pointed out some of the obvious absurdities in it. I confessed categorically that it was all bunkum. I called upon the historians of the land to take it out of their books. This confession and appeal was printed simultaneously in nearly 30 great American newspapers. One of them was the eminent Boston Herald, organ of the New England Illuminati. The Herald printed my article on page 7 of its editorial section under a four-column head and with a two-column cartoon labeled, satirically, The American Public Will Swallow Anything. And then, on June 13th, three weeks later, in the same editorial section but promoted to page 1, that same Herald reprinted my 10-year-old fake soberly and as a piece of news. Do not misunderstand me. I am not seeking to cast a stone at the Herald or at its talented and patriotic editors. It is, I believe, one of the glories of American journalism. It labors unceasingly for virtue and the flag. If it were suppressed by the Watch and Ward Society tomorrow, New England would revert instantly to savagery. Wolves and catamounts would roam to Boylston Street, and the Harvard Law School would be engulfed by Bolshevism. 
Little does the public wreck what great sums such journals expend to establish and disseminate the truth. It may cost $10,000 and a reporter's leg to get a full and accurate list of the guests at a Roxbury wake with their injuries. My point is that, despite all this extravagant frenzy for the truth, there is something in the human mind that turns instinctively to fiction, and that even journalists succumb to it. A German philosopher, Dr. Hans Vollinger, had put the thing into a formal theory, and you will find it expounded at length in his book, The Philosophy of As If. It is a sheer impossibility, says Dr. Vollinger, for human beings to think exclusively in terms of truth. For one thing, the stock of indubitable truths is too scanty. For another thing, there is an instinctive aversion to them that I have already mentioned. All of our thinking, according to Vollinger, is in terms of assumptions, many of them plainly not true. Into our most solemn and serious reflections, fictions enter, and three times out of four, they quickly crowd out all the facts. That this is true needs no argument. Every man thinking of his wife has to assume that she is beautiful and amiable, else despair will seize him and he will be unable to think at all. Every American contemplating Dr. Coolidge is physically bound to admire him. The alternative is anarchy. Every Christian viewing the clergy is forced into a bold theorizing to save himself from Darwinism. And all of us, taking stock of ourselves, must resort to hypothesis to escape the river. What ails the truth is that it is mainly uncomfortable and often dull. The human mind seeks something more amusing and more caressing. What the actual history of the bathtub may be, I don't know. Digging it out would be a dreadful job, and the result, after all that labor, would probably be a string of banalities. The fiction I concocted back in 1917 was at least better than that. It lacked sense, but it was certainly not without a certain charm. There were heroes in it and villains. It revealed a conflict with virtue winning. So it was embraced by mankind, precisely as the story of George Washington and the cherry tree was embraced, and it will live, I dare say, until it is displaced by something worse, and hence better. In other words, it was poetry. And what is poetry? Poetry is simply a mellifluous statement of the obviously not true. The two elements are both important and perhaps equally. It is not sufficient that the thing said be untrue. It must also be said with a certain grace. It must soothe the ear while it debauches the mind. And it is not sufficient that it be voluptuous. It must also offer a rock and a refuge from the harsh facts of every day. All poetry embodies a lie. It may be an objective lie, as in, God is in his heaven, all's well with the world, or it may be a subjective lie, as in, I am the master of my fate. But it must be a lie, and preferably a thumping one. Poets, in general, protest against this doctrine. They argue that they actually deal in the truth, and that their brand of truth is of a peculiarly profound and esoteric quality. In other words, that their compositions add to the sum of human wisdom. It is sufficient answer to them to say that chiropractors make precisely the same claim and with exactly the same plausibility. Both actually deal in fictions. Those fictions are not truth. They are not even truths in decay. They are simply better than truths. They make life more comfortable and happy. They turn and dull the sharp edge of reality. It is commonly held that the vast majority of men are anesthetic to poetry, as they are alleged to be anesthetic to other forms of beauty, but this is itself a fiction devised by poets to dignify their trade and make it seem high-toned and mysterious. The fact is that the love of poetry is one of the most primitive of human traits, and that it appears in children almost as soon as they learn to speak. I do not refer here to the love of verbal jingles, but to the love of poetry properly so called. That is, to the love of the agreeably not so. A little girl who nurses a rag doll is a poet, and so is a boy who plays at soldiers with a box of clothing pins. Their ma is another poet when she brags about them to the neighbors, and their pa when he praises the cooking of their ma. The more simple-minded the individual, indeed, the greater his need of poetry, and hence the more steady his demand for it. No poet approved by the intelligentsia ever had so many customers as Edward A. Guest. Guest's dithyrams are laughed at by the intelligentsia, not because the things they say are not so, but because the fiction in them is of a kind not satisfying to sniffish and snooty men. It is fiction suitable to persons of a less critical habit. It preaches the joys open to the humble. It glorifies their dire necessities. It cries down their lacks. It promises them happiness, and if not happiness, then at least contentment. No wonder it is popular. No wonder it is intoned every time Kiwanis get together and the reassuring slapping of backs begins. It is itself a sort of backslapping. 
and so is all other poetry. The strophes of Robert Browning elude the Kiwanian, but they are full of soothing for the young college professor, for they tell him that it is a marvelous and exhilarating thing to be an intellectual as he is. This, of course, is not true, which is the chief reason it is pleasant. No normal human being wants to hear the truth. It is the passion of a small and aberrant minority of men, most of them pathological. They are hated for telling it while they live, and when they die, they are swiftly forgotten. What remains to the world in the field of wisdom is a series of long-tested and solidly agreeable lies. If all of that sounds too cynical for your liking, just remember this. Mencken's legacy has lived on for a century now. Whether his claims were true or not, well, that's <laughs> above my ken to say, but nobody, not even the man himself, would describe him as pleasant. Despite his lack of reassurances, his legacy continues, which could be taken as a bit of reassurance itself, a bracing truth to submerge in, like a nice, hot, maybe a little bit scalding bath. Music for today's episode by Lee Rose Vare, Blue Dot Sessions, Kevin McLeod, Lakey-inspired Jan Franz Bez, George Friedrich Handel, and Scott Joplin. Find us at constantpodcast.com. From there, you can like and follow us on all your favorite social media platforms. Wow, don't you just love social media platforms? Or go to patreon.com slash theconstant to help support the making of this show. We're a part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, home to Ministry of Ideas, who are back from hiatus with a new episode about virtual violence and the perilous tightrope walk of addressing online attacks as physical ones. It's a deep, complicated, nuanced, chewy debate that you're probably a part of whether you want to be or not. So go listen. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where the women of the Municipal Order League combated the lack of indoor plumbing for the poor with a popular uprising that called for public baths to be built around the city between 1894 and 1918, this has been The Constant.